Welcome to this podcast, part of the Leadership Playbook series from London Business School. I'm John Dore, Programme Director for the school's flagship executive education course, the Senior Executive Programme. SEP, as it's known, has been running at London Business School every year since 1966 and aims to challenge the thinking and stretch the ambition of senior business leaders from around the world. Today, we have two guests, um, Tom Solinsky and Alex McLaren from the Spontaneity Shop, an organisation that helps people and companies communicate more clearly and build stronger relationships. And they do this through harnessing the art of performance, storytelling and improvisation. Now, Tom and Alex have been contributors on the SEP and other programmes at the school for a number of years. On the SEP, they facilitate a highly interactive and dynamic workshop using various exercises and a tool called improvisation. But why would we do that? And what can leaders actually learn? And can the learning they get actually be used afterwards in the real world of work? So welcome, Tom and Alex. Nice to see you you both. Um, I thought we'd start in um, improvisation mode rather than me uh, read your bios. Perhaps, Perhaps you'd be good enough just to introduce one another. Over to you, Tom and Alex. Uh, Okay, Uh, this is Alex McLaren. He works with me at the Spontaneity Shop. He trained as an actor at uh, Bristol Old Vic, uh, where because he was born in Preston, they had to teach him to say bath and path instead of bath and path. Uh, And uh, he then set out on a career as an actor. And in furtherance of this mission, he came to see the then fairly fledgling spontaneity shop performing a comedy show at London's prestigious Canal Cafe. Uh, And because he was mates with somebody who ran a big theatre in Edinburgh, we thought he was somebody very important and we had to be nice to him. Okay. Uh, And uh, being English, it would be far too embarrassing now uh, to have to admit uh, that that was all a terrible mistake, and so we've ended up running a company together. <laughs> and how long? How, how long has that beautiful relationship been? Oh, Alex, what is it? Twenty years? It is definitely twenty years because I remember it was in uh, the year two, spring of the year two thousand. Uh, <laughs> there you go, more than twenty years. Indeed, and this is so. I met Tom Selinsky. This is Tom, who uh, I'd love to introduce to you all. He, um, my memory is that he did a mathematics degree, which explains um, his uh, unusual brain. He is by far the most <laughs> organised head of anyone I know who works in the arts. Um, if somebody has a magic power, Tom's is to stand near a computer and it suddenly realises who's in charge and behaves. So he's very helpful to have around if you have technical problems. Um, he was performing in that show that I saw. Um, the, the third um, boss of the spontaneity shop uh, is uh, Tom's wife, Deborah Francis White, um, who many people will know of as the stand-up and star of the Guilty Feminist podcast, which is produced by our company, the spontaneity shop. Um, and they, at the time, were performing, but also teaching. And uh, they were the improvisation teachers that I had been looking for, for about six years uh, when I met them at the age of, wow. I think, 21. 22 maybe 20 no, 23 years old um so uh he um and he trained with patty styles and keith johnston uh, which goes back to uh the beginning of improvisation the, uh, the the journey of being an improviser for me keith johnston is the british improvisation guru uh, that began it all could, could we start there then, Alex? Just keep us there then, because um, you know, it, I think it's relatively um, 
uh, familiar to people in terms of what they've seen on TV or if they've been to a comedy store. But but this idea of using improvisation in a learning environment, how, how did that come about and, and, and why do you think it landed so well? Um, absolutely. I, I think I first came across it when I was 15, when I watched Whose Line Is It Anyway, which is a show that many people my generation will remember. And in fact, some people may still remember because there's an American version of the format which occasionally gets repeats on uh, on the TV channel Dave. The, um, the, the improvisation, I suppose, we use the term to talk about making things up as we go along. Um, and so uh, my parents are musicians. There are some people who are musical improvisers who are making up music without having, uh, having rehearsed in advance. Um, but I was seeing people make up stories and sketches when I was 15. And I was at the time, I was already very keen to become an actor. Uh, I was particularly interested in Shakespeare, John. And um, but that can sometimes feel a little bit like a sort of a recitation that uh, that felt like um, there was a sense of predictability about it in some performances. Um, and I was interested in the performances that I saw that made it feel dangerous, like anything could happen. And of course, it's a simulation. I mean, there is something that happens at the end of Hamlet um, and we know it's coming. Um, but then that, that feeling of magic and spontaneity and it happening right now, I felt was very raw in the sketches I was watching in Who's Line. Uh, these were people like uh, Josie Lawrence, uh, Sandy Toxvig in her youth and uh, Paul Merton. Um, and uh, so there was something about that that was particularly exciting for me. I had uh, an acting teacher called Peter Hartley who gave me a copy of a book called Impro by Keith Johnston. And I am not a this book changed my life kind of person, but that book did change my life. And it, it wasn't only about performance. That was the thing which I think is really exciting. It was about growing up. It was about uh, the fear of failure. It was about uh, why we need to be in control of things when we are in situations which are slightly heightened and anxious. Um, it was all about storytelling. Um, there was a huge section in that book about uh, the status dynamics that we find interesting to watch, um, both uh, on stage and in movies and also in real life. Um, and so uh, my journey has been through uh, that as a learner and as a performer, then as a teacher. Um, but it became about everything else, which is how I ended up uh, finding the kind of work I do today so satisfying. Yeah. So maybe bring us up to date then, maybe Tom, sort of the spontaneity shot. What, what sort of things do you get involved in and, and what sort of things do corporate organizations ask you to help them with? It does sound like a, a curious mix, doesn't it? But actually, it was something that came to find us rather than we weren't looking for it. Uh, so once we started doing these regular shows in London, as Alex has mentioned, we started giving workshops. So we started teaching other people what we'd learned. Uh, and uh, we had given some thought to trying to make more money than it's possible to make by doing comedy shows in rooms above pubs. Uh, out of our improvisation work, we'd assumed it would be uh, corporate entertainment. It would be mm. Christmas parties and things like that. Actually, what happened was people started coming on the workshops and saying, this is terrific. I think other people I work with could benefit from this. Do you want to come and run a session for me and my team? And so we kind of uh, fell sideways into it. 
And one of the things that we had to do was figure out what was it that had made those people who'd come to us looking for something very particular, how to learn this ability to stand on a stage and make up something that was interesting and entertaining and coherent in collaboration with other people with no opportunity to go back and correct any mistakes. Uh, What was it that they'd found so interesting, which they could see the application of, and how could we shortcut that? Because they often came to that realisation after working with us for six, seven, eight, nine weeks, and we had to find a way of presenting it, which, which would make sense in only a few hours. So it was a case of taking some of the skills and kind of lifting them out of that theatrical paradigm and putting them back down in this more corporate world. So, so how, how do you make that happen? Because if people are on a leadership course or they're on a, a, attending a business school, they have lectures, they have workshops, they have coaching sessions, there's a certain sort of formality to it and an expectation. And then you do something which really probably feels pretty uncomfortable, um, from, certainly from the way I witness it. So how do you sort of make that happen without um, without sort of uh, scaring people to run for the door, as it were? I think it's interesting you're, you're talking about the uncomfortable uh, uh, feeling that can sometimes overcome us when we're in that environment. And I uh, uh, appreciate that. People often talk about, oh, I'm not sure if I want to do this. It's outside my comfort zone. Uh, and in fact, uh, we, of course, we, I don't particularly want to make anybody feel uncomfortable. Um, when I'm working with a group of people, my job is to be comfortable and invite them to join me. And uh, And I think that in my experience as an adult learner, I think that very often the relationship between the teacher and the group is one in which there is quite a bit of anxiety, quite a sort of a, a desire to prove oneself rather than an appetite for each other. Um, and so I think that's always been at the heart of what I do. When I walk into a room, I am so looking forward to playing with these people. Um, and, uh, and I'm interested in what they have to offer and what they can teach me. Because, of course, as you know, John, every different group, I work with at the business school comes from a different industry. With the SEP um, attendees, every single one of them comes from a a different part of the universe. And so there's an opportunity for a conversation between, I think, the, uh, the, the, the person who's running the session and the people attending it. That in itself, I think, is significantly different and exciting. Sorry, I think probably the best way to ask this is without being rude to you guys, because you started the story telling me about, you know, comedy events above a pub. Is this just edutainment? Is this just a way of giving people a lift on the program? Or is it actually, is there actually a deep learning purpose that you could, you, you could justify? Well, I'll speak for myself and say that uh, the skills that I originally learned for the purpose of entertaining people in rooms above pubs, uh, have proved to me to be really, really important life skills that I rely on every day and that I don't quite know what I did without them. Uh, And going back to your point about being uncomfortable, one of the things that we talk about early on, and I think we do, I'd like to think, a good job of making this seem like a, a coherent argument, but it's kind of our job then over the rest of the session to really prove that and get people to feel it in their bones is talking about that fear of failure, which Alex referred to. Because a lot of people will 
walk into a session of any kind, any opportunity to learn something, with one of two mindsets. Either this is one of those things I'm not very good at, my aim will be to contribute as little as possible, and therefore emerge with my dignity intact. Or this is one of those things I am good at, I'm going to be trying as hard as possible uh, to show off how brilliant I already am, and it would be disastrous if it turned out that I was going to fail at anything here because this is my wheelhouse. And neither of those mindsets is really helpful. If you turn up to a workshop and don't contribute, clearly you, you haven't learned anything. But if you turn up to a workshop and you have nothing but success all the way through, again, you haven't learned anything. This was something that you were already good at. So we have to reframe what failure means in order to make any progress. We have to tell our attendees we're hoping that they will fail, at least at the beginning. And that if they have nothing but success, we're going to have to try and find harder exercises in order to challenge them. It's not just a, a British condition. I, I think you know we work with people all over the world. And, and how you show up and not being embarrassed and um, keeping your composure are, are often thought of, Sort of thought as you know valuable leadership skills, but you take them into a space where composure, showing up, and 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 not being embarrassed is turned on its head. So, uh, why do you think that happens and happens with such ease? I think the reason is that there is that people fundamentally, deep down, are desperately hungry to get back to that state that they remember somewhere in their bones from when they were a small child. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's amazing how difficult we all found it, I think, in many ways to work during the pandemic if we had children in the house because they kept on walking in. And the problem for the other people on our Teams and Zoom calls is that they were more interesting and important than anything that was being discussed on the call. Uh, they And I'm, I'm not being, I'm not, I'm not joking really about that. They they would bring with them a sort of uh, an instinctive sense of their own importance. They were more interested in everything else that was going on. And it took about 48 hours for people to adjust to that because um, we, we had to recognize that, that that mattered more. That state of relaxation of a lack of expectation that they're under less, particularly small children, they're under less pressure to prove anything. Um, means that they are entirely available to explore all kinds of different things. They have less anxiety about screwing things up. They're, the pain of failure doesn't linger so much in a tiny child as it does in an adult. They don't beat themselves up when they screw up in front of their peers in the way that we do. And they aren't designing their lives to avoid those situations in the way that uh, many adults do. Yeah, I think it reminds me there's a story, a writer, um, Hugh McLeod, tells this story where, you know, there's this awful thing that happens to us in our early education where there's there's one day you walk into the classroom and the crayons have gone, you know, you're used to it. And then the next day it's about how straight the line is, how accurate it is, how well, well, um, well formed the letter is you write. And up until then it's been, you know, how much colour could you get onto the page? So... Are you sort of saying there's something similar? We innately we feel we've got this, um, you know, this color and creativity that we somehow, as a leader, 
you know, um, uh, put our corporate jackets on and somehow, you know, don't exhibit. I do feel that. I, I, and, and there's, it's funny that you will often find when people go into a creative space that the coloured markers will come back out again. Um, and then there can be a bit of a conflict between, oh God, this is all quite, you know, my, my, my work is far more serious and, uh, and busy than this. And there's a sort of a resistance to it. Um, and yet, those same people, when they are in a creative space, suddenly they seem 20 years younger. They that you can see that the, when they're unselfconsciously focusing on a problem and not trying to demonstrate any qualities that they feel that this is my job title, I've got to be like this. You see them suddenly getting into a place of engagement that we, you see children have with each other much more often than adults and that you see friends have with each other all of the time. Because when we are among people who take take our, uh, our potential for granted, suddenly it releases us to, we don't have to waste energy, any energy on proving anything. We're not anxious about people's judgment of our contributions. And so we, we, we get into that place of unselfconsciousness that from the outside looks like a, a magic power. And I think one reason why the the sort of the active exercises that we are we we do in our workshops achieve a quite an unusual outcome is that you can argue with somebody's theories about what's what's going to change people's behavior in in a conversation you can get all verbal and in your head about it but when we do things we can kind of get out of that sort of frontal cortex brain and start uh, and actually having an emotional experience. And then that gives us something much more tangible to process um, in terms of what, uh, about, about what happened, what was different, what changed about our behavior and, and how we felt differently when we were doing something rather than just talking about it. It's interesting. So one one of the things you'll know, we work with some very senior people. You know, these they run you know extraordinary, large, complex political organisations. They come from you know parts of the world where they have to do business and you know deals with people in different cultures and different environments. So you know they they're they're doing quite demanding roles. And and one of the things I just want to go back to this idea about how you show up because one of the things you do as well as loosening people up. You also do some work with them about how they can have more presence and more impact and more confidence. So, is there a yin and yang here? Do you loosen them up, but there's also a way that you can somehow straighten them up as well? Could you could you sort of talk us through those two two sort of um, outcomes? Well, there's an interesting word that gets bandied around a lot, uh, and that's authenticity. Uh, and uh, I think sometimes people talk about authenticity in a sort of one-dimensional way, as if absolutely it's no question the more authentic you can be, the better for everybody. Uh, But not everybody's authenticity is something which necessarily has a place at work. Uh, If you, uh, it it can be very limiting in that way, you know. If if you are, uh, if you authentically uh, can't stand somebody you're supposed to be working with or negotiating with or impressing, uh, then putting that on display is unlikely to help you. So you have to ask two different questions at once. One question is, what useful, beneficial parts of myself am I hiding away because of fear of embarrassment or being socially unacceptable or fear of failure? To what extent am I just making myself bland 
and boring because that at least won't cause any offense. But also, what would the best version of myself be like in this situation? One of the things we talk about when it seems sort of obvious, almost Pollyanna-ish, is that on stage improvisers need to make each other look good. You need to support your partner. You need to accept their offers. You need not to uh, undermine them for the sake of a cheap laugh. And it's one thing to say that, but if we put people in a situation where, in the case of one of your workshops, in front of about 30 other people, they are relying on that ability in the moment to be successful, then it starts to get into their bones in a way which it might not if we just said it and, and put up a PowerPoint slide. Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. The, the, I, I'm interested as well, because um, this, this question about authenticity will often come up when we are doing work which involves behavioral change. And of course, if I do something in a new way, <laughs> it's not something I was doing before. So is any kind of behavioral change going to be accompanied by a feeling of authenticity? Uh, and I think very often um, when we, we suddenly take on, say, a new job, um, you feel incredibly like the, the imposter syndrome begins to take you over and you often feel like I, I'm, I'm faking this this, uh, and I'm going to get spotted. Um, but it's not really necessarily your behavior that people are concerned about in terms of authenticity. Um, if I see my colleague honestly trying to do the right thing <laughs> badly, I still love them for giving it a go. Um, even if it kind of, it looks clumsy or it's, so it's the first time he or she's tried it or um, it, it's really, it's the motive. It's the authenticity of the motive, which I think people are profoundly interested in. And this is, might feel like a strange thing, but I've, 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 I've very much come to the conclusion that the most important question in working life and leadership is. Uh, is the same as the most important question in show business. It's what's her motivation? What's my motivation? And not what is he doing? It's why is he doing it? And now, now that question is full of fundamental issues about authenticity um, because people will, in a rehearsal room, if Tom and I were working on a play, one of the arguments we'll have is why does Lady Macbeth do this? <laughs> why does, uh, does Duncan do that? Uh, why does Hamlet not do this? Um, and the answers to those questions are what takes us to the heart and the truth of the, what the story is telling us about human behavior. So, so, Alex, is that um, a, a, a life hack you've just given us for free? If you're in the <laughs> work environment, you're in a, a busy office or a you know um, a, a, a pivotal meeting, we should be more concerned with the motives of others rather than the things they're actually wanting to do. Is it it's not about their actions and their plan? It's about the their underlying um, their underlying um, motivation for doing it. Well, I'd certainly think it's a uh, well, it's a it's a part of what, for example, good negotiation is about. You know, if we if we take positions and have secrets, we often aren't really um, uh, we aren't building an, uh, a particularly um, a relationship uh, that we, that might lead to repeat business. Okay, um, I, I think one of the most difficult 
negotiations we carry out is buying a house, which is, tends to be a one-time only deal. You want to buy my house, John? You're not necessarily buying a lot of houses from me. And so uh, having a good relationship between us in which we're believing each other and trusting each other, not, not necessarily massively important, but if we're going to be doing a lot of business together, it's important that I know what your interests are and you know what mine are, and we're exploring each other's interests. And that way we can come to uh, agreements and deals which will last because we're thinking about what each other's motivations are as mo- and why and, and and validating those needs you know in order for us to collaborate we both need to get something out of this um, and so I think each other's motives really do matter and we need to share them okay so and um, what what I just want to do is just take it from that experience now if we could so we've brought a group together you've worked with them for say half a day you've had you know time to get to know them very well they've seen something of one another they probably never expected by doing some of these procedures and exercises you do H- how does that then become applicable you know does it just become something that was a a learning experience in the moment or is there actually learning in terms of their leadership style or approach or the way they tackle issues back within the work is there something they can take from that uh, yes I mean I, I certainly hope so uh, I ran a session this is quite a, a rare occurrence to have it so kind of immediately but I ran a session for quite a senior team and it was a little bit of a struggle for me because uh, there were supposed to be 12 people there uh, and then over the course of the day people kept dropping out we ended up with a group of five and a lot of the exercises that we do early on kind of rely on there being a decent number of people in the room so that when we send people off to do stuff or they're doing stuff in pairs the room is just sort of full of noise and nobody feels too overlooked but with only five people when I wanted to pair people up I had to be one of the partners which always puts people on edge a little bit I think Uh, and then there were only three groups so it was it was one I was sort of worried it would be hard for me to engender the kind of spirits that I knew would be beneficial. But we did an exercise which is one of the more well-known ones, uh, looking at what happens when people disagree, agree grudgingly, and then agree enthusiastically. And we're talking to them about how they built relationships at work and how much people enjoyed hearing those positive affirmations and so on. And it had been going better than I expected But when we kind of started talking about this and processing it, there was one guy, American guy, in his maybe late 30s, quite senior, who was just sort of staring at me. And I thought, in a minute, am I going to (laughs) hear? I've never heard so much nonsense in all my life. He looked at me and went, I think I might have been a huge asshole. (laughs) It somehow had never occurred to him in all his kind of bullish enthusiasm for his own ideas to think about how he came across from someone else's point of view and to hear the difference when his ideas are knocked back or his ideas are only reluctantly agreed to. And I think it really was a a big light bulb moment for him. Uh, Now, a lot of people would have gone through that light bulb moment and kept it to themselves. Uh, And I don't imagine that every single person who sees sees that exercise has that same kind of come to Jesus moment. But I know it can happen. And I've had people who've only worked with us for a couple of hours, years later, say to me, I still use that exercise. I still think about that thing you told us. So I think it, it does have an impact. The longer we can work with people, you know, the, the, the more these ideas have a chance to bed in. But we can have an impact in a short space of time, I believe. 
I think that the uh, what's also exciting is that uh, and you've seen this, John, when we're we're doing exercises with people, and you can see people suddenly become very excited and and the reason they're becoming excited is there is to, to to experience the excitement and the and the anxiety and the stress and the buzz of real engagement with other people suddenly plugs them into their recent memories about the challenges that happened to them at the office yesterday or their anticipation of something that's got to happen tomorrow um, I, I, I was doing some work the other day with uh, a, a young consultant and she was explaining to me that she had to make something happen she had to get a team who she knew was going to be skeptical uh, interested in uh, a sort of an eq training program an offering that she wanted to bring to them so it was this kind of like how am i going to pitch this um in a way that's exciting and and, and very often people will go into those uh, engagements you know very heavily prepared um, you know, with a kind of a paragraph of of sales material, which they'll say to the people on the other side. Um, but uh, one thing that we will often explore when we're working with people is how resistant people are to being sold to, and this happens internally as well. You know, we're often trying to 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 to, to be heard rather than to listen. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it, it always feels easier when you feel like this person understands what my problem is and has a solution to it, rather than this person is bringing solutions to a situation they don't understand yet. Uh, and I remember saying to her, well, um, it, w- what kind of problem is uh, is EQ designed to solve? She said, "Oh, well, we got all sorts of problems in this organisation. Um, when junior people simply won't ask for help, um, they're so anxious about it. They don't know they're anxious. They don't dare to talk to senior people and ask them for assistance. And uh, and so we came up with a new process where, the, where rather than going in and pitching her own agenda, which would be very much the kind of the yes but push." style of approach instead she would simply open up the floor and say do you have problems with juniors not asking for help and listen to the stories that they tell you because then uh you're uh, it, it, although it may feel like you're 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 yielding airtime and you've only got sort of 20 minutes to make this point in fact they're doing some of the sharing some of the work some of the conversation with you and they're teaching you what they want you to yes and. And she can then connect her EQ course to what they are asking for rather than insisting they take the medicine that's good for them. And that's a very different kind of relationship that we associate with our allies rather than uh, with the sort of the mild little competitions that happens internally in organizations. Brilliant. I think it leads perfectly on for me. I've just got a couple of other things, a couple of things I wanted just to cover with just in the little short time we have together. I mean, one, both you there, Tom, tell me the story about the American guy who has an aha moment. And Alex, you've got the, you know, the the, the um, woman executive there who suddenly finds a way of unearthing a problem. Or, or, or But you both use a story as a way of doing it. And um, I, I sort of got a sense in last few years that sort of storytelling in business leadership circles and um, you know leadership development somehow had gone out of fashion. Where are you on that? Do you still think the the power of the story gets to the heart of the things, or is a is a nice to have? I think it's it's crucial. It's absolutely crucial. Uh, storytelling kind of short circuits a lot of ways of thinking about things. It makes us appreciate something on a more gut level. Uh, it stays with us um, 
there's an exercise we do where we get people to swap just social stories, little dinner party anecdotes, uh, and then um, find something else to, to talk about. And then we come back to those stories after about 20 minutes have passed. We haven't given the attendees any notice they were going to have to do this. So this has been a slight spoiler for this part of the session, sorry. Uh, and people have to go back to their partners and tell their partner their own story. And people often think, oh, God, this is terribly difficult. And I reassure them it's not a test. It's an experiment. I want to see what happens. Uh, and it's not a very fair test because you weren't told you're going to have to try and memorize the story. And it's not even a fair test of the person telling the story because they weren't told they had to tell a memorable story. They were just told they had to tell a story. What's fascinating is that people find this substantially easier than they thought it was going to be. Without you expending any effort, all the key information about that story has gone in and you do have the ability to tell it to somebody else. If you are so concerned to be seen as grown up and professional, not those are necessarily bad things, uh, but if that has swamped your ability to tell a story and you're now telling just the facts in as dry and forensic a manner as possible, you may very well succeed in your goal of coming across as professional, intelligent, knowing what you're talking about and so on. But if nobody that you're talking to can recall the details of what you're saying or understand what the point was you were trying to make. <laughs> happens to me all the time. That happens to me all the time, Tom. I, I guess one little thing just there, uh, because obviously we, we, we can't give um, you know the, the, the listeners of this podcast the, the real insight. We can just give them a slight you know, little you know, subliminal hint of what you do. But I just wanted to share with you two, but also with our listeners. I know you do um, an exercise called rock, paper, scissors, which, you know, obviously is like a child's game. It's, you know, something you do the sort of, past the time you know but 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 there's sort of childish element to it but you use it in quite a visceral and extraordinary way with executives and i know we can't replicate the full experience but i just wondered whether you could just give us some sort of sense of how that works and also why for leaders you think it is so such an extraordinary little exercise rock paper scissors Okay, um, I'm very happy to do this. Uh, th so I remember when I, uh, we were doing an improv workshop and someone introduced us to this game. And I think Tom and I literally made eye contact like, oh, uh, th this this is a beauty. Uh, so with a crowd, you simply set people up in pairs to carry out a rock, paper, scissors exercise. Um, and, uh, and every rock, paper, scissors, ultimately, you can do kind of best out of three if you want, but they will end up with, if Tom and I do it, that Tom will win, I will lose. It's a little binary win-lose victory or the other way around. Um, and, uh, and then what we simply do is we say, once you've been beaten, you have a moment to sulk. Victors, you have a moment to gloat. And then the loser must let go of their feeling of defeat, um, accept it, and then become the president of the winner's supporters club. And so then Tom will start looking for a second winner and I will go, come on, Tom. Um, and that second winner will have the loser cheering them on. It'll be, you know, somebody will be cheering John on as John and Tom do round two of Scissors, Paper, Rock. So it's a Scissors, Paper, Rock tournament. You end up with round two, you end up with quarterfinals, semifinals, then a final in which two members of the group do a final Scissors, Paper, Rock battle with massive crowds cheering on each side. Now, <laughs> as you say, it's kind of, is this childish? 
it's amazing how incredibly excited very senior people get when they do this because we're almost we're, well there's a number of reasons why they get excited one is that uh it's funny <laughs> and also they recognize how preposterous it is preposterous it is to to get to to get to invest anything in something so trivial as this as paper right you might as well toss a coin it's not a test of anything meaningful so there is a freedom to enter into the spirit of the game because it's not going to mean anything if i lose it um but it's also because of the kind of the instructions that we are giving and this relates to something about storytelling um the reason that professional sports are so exciting is that we don't know who's going to win at the beginning so there is a a potential for us to learn something and for people to be changed within it um uh you say that stories are going out of fashion they'll never go out of fashion john i can tell you that um they they may they may be kind of cycles to people's understanding of it within uh, business but uh, but at the heart of it you can have this for free is that stories are about change and so when you have a kind of a whole sequence of thrilling little changes going on the group finds that very exciting um but i remember the f- the first time i did this was a, a group of executives they were actually professional storytellers they were they were soap opera producers and script writers at a massive conference in bulgaria and uh they uh and when we did this the thing they found most exciting was that they committed to each round of scissors paper rock but once they had lost and were beaten it's so it's so liberating to be able to say okay let that go it doesn't matter we're moving on um uh, so often when uh, if i pitch something and it doesn't go well or somebody else's idea goes forward and my doesn't i can i can stay wedded to my idea and uh, and uh, secretly maybe not even consciously a bit of me is hoping that their idea later fails and i don't really get on board with the kind of commitment that's going to make the progress as a group move things forward um and i think that happens an awful lot particularly in big organizations where the sort of the office politics can happen yeah that that the, i i i'm just a testament to have seen the the thing in action that that moment where somebody goes from abject failure on something trivial but it's still abject failure to suddenly you know exuding joy and support and cheering somebody else on is is pretty remarkable and if we could all do that in um in our working lives that would be um you know our workplaces i think would be very different i think it's a, it, just for, for leaders as well i think it's significant noticing that uh, we we are looking at our leaders and looking to see them commit we like to believe that they care about something and we see that in the way their behaviors change um i think so often we think that uh, because leadership is about being in charge and control it's often about withholding emotional information uh, but that tends not to motivate us um and uh, so a part of this program is about giving people permission to be changed by what happens um and be seen to be changed be witnessed as to have having feelings uh because uh, in boardrooms they're passionate places <laughs> people care
we're, we're pretty much out of time, but I just wanted to thank you for joining us on um, on this leadership series. Um, it's been a delight to um, have you both on the um, Senior Executive Programme, but also taking part in this podcast. I suppose I'll leave the last word either with um, you, Tom, or Alex, you decide. But um, if people want to find out a little bit more about the Spontaneity Shop, or even if they want to find that um, that room above a pub and find a, a little experience, um, where should we head after this podcast to find out a little bit more? Everything we're doing, you can find at the-spontaneity-shop.com. Not the most elegant website address, but uh, we've had it for too long now to change it. Uh, we don't really do those shows in rooms above pubs anymore, but we do a variety of podcasts, including the Guilty Feminist podcast, which uh, Alex referred to, uh, and then our um, comedy panel show, which Deborah also hosts, Global Pillage, uh, and a variety of others as well. Uh, so it's all on the-spontaneity-shop.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Tom Selinsky. Um, uh, if you're interested in um, sort of thing, at seeing how this stuff applies, one thing people often ask for is networking. And Tom and I recorded about sort of 30 episodes of uh, a podcast about how to talk to anyone. Um, and uh, certainly among the the professional services people we've worked with, they often really want help with that. And there's lots of interesting stuff you can get into there. That's on our, our website as well. Um, we have, uh, yeah, we have a spontaneity shop Twitter feed, um, and uh, yeah, if you're interested in linking us in, uh, LinkedIn is not my happiest place, but anybody who asks me to link them in, I always say yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, well, it's been great to have you both then today, and thank you for joining um, the Leadership Playbook. Uh, thank you for partnering with London Business School. Um, have a great day. Thanks for everybody. Listening. Thanks, John. Take care. Thanks again. Thanks for having us.